Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Sazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two or not three straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Hello everybody and welcome to this, this the second Tuesday of the new year um, and the first non-Sishin Taisho of the year. And I thought what I'd do tonight is take a look at vows. We're also going to look a little bit at, at faith and, and compassion and renunciation. Uh, but this time of year, this is still, I think we're still in the realm of vow-making and resolution-making at this point of the year. And so it seemed like it would be a, a timely um, thing to, to look into this, this um, topic of vows. And I was struck um, in our session by um, a passage in, the, in one of the texts we were reading from, Shattering the Great Doubt, where uh, Master Sheng Yen said that to successfully practice about practicing Zen, Chan, you need, you need more than just the method of meditation. You should also have the proper attitudes. You should have faith and confidence. You should make vows and you should have a compassionate heart and cultivate renunciation. So this talk is going to be mostly about vows because it's really at the core of these other things. Um, but we'll talk a little bit, we'll just talk a little bit about each of these four as well. Um, 
I think it's fair to say that all religions are established on faith. And um, what makes Buddhism different is that it's not uh, no requirement for belief in any kind of deity. Um, primarily what, what we're, we're um, called upon to, to uncover in ourselves is, is faith in oneself. Um, there's one teacher, Chogyam Trungpa, who, who coined the term basic goodness. Um, it's a way of describing what our Buddha nature is. Uh, this, this, this basic potential that we have to evolve, to, to uh, wake up, to learn from our mistakes, to, to, um, re to recognize our mistakes. From, you could say from the, from the ultimate point of view, um, we, every single moment we're receiving proof of our Buddha nature, of our, our, our basic goodness, our, our um, the functioning of our enlightened mind, you, say, you could say, the fact that you all can hear me right now and see me, that's your enlightened mind functioning. Um, that the fact that I can raise my hand, that I can inhale and exhale, that I can feel the, the, the air from the fan, or, or that, that um, we can experience different feelings, boredom, interest. These are all, these are all proof of move functioning. Uh, but we don't realize it. There's a um, passage from a master, De Ching, where he, he addresses this very thing. I can find the right. He says, Concerning the causes and conditions of this great matter, this Buddha nature is intrinsically within everyone. As such, it is already complete within you, lacking nothing. The difficulty is that since time without beginning, seeds of passion, deluded thinking, emotional conceptualization, and deep-rooted habitual tendencies have obscured this marvelous luminosity. You cannot genuinely realize it because you have been wallowing in remnant deluded thoughts of body, mind, and world discriminating and musing about this and that. For these reasons, you have been roaming in the cycle of birth and death endlessly. Yet all Buddhas and ancestral masters have appeared in the world using countless words and expedient means to expound on Zen and to clarify the doctrine, following and meeting different dispositions of sentient beings. All of these are expedient tools to crush our minds of clinging and enable them to realize that originally there is no substantiality to dharma or sense of self. So vows, we could include um, the vows we take um, in the category of, of expedient means that Te Ching talks about. 
the, the, the um, faith that we um, need in, in Buddhist practice is, uh, is not blind faith, we've talked about this before, but um, faith based on experience. So everybody in this room, even if you, if you don't consciously remember it, um, ha must have had an experience or experiences to um, lead you here to do this practice. Um, we may at times think we don't have much faith, um, but but nobody would be here if they didn't have some some a kernel of faith, and we can um, t take that kernel of faith and and through vows we can we can um, deepen it and expand it. Just to give some examples of the sorts of. Um, Experiences can strengthen our faith. There, um, there are, last year, I think we, we looked at this one of Susan Murphy's, where it's, it's really um, a, a powerful awakening experience she has at the age of 12. And she and her brothers and sisters were sat up all night talking about the, the terrible state of the world. Um, and and they, she, she says, we talked on and on in a state of terror, curiously mixed with intensely alive excitement, weighing up the fate of the world during our lifetime and our possible part in it. And then, she, so she finally goes to bed at around three or four in the morning, uh, feeling pretty crushed by this, this um, conversation she's had. But also, at the same time, feeling intensely alive, I remember the next morning was very bright, perhaps a shade too bright after the latest night of my life thus far. I had heaped cereal into my bowl and milk and walked to the same high-backed chair of the night before. The extraordinary night lay inside me as a kaleidoscope of amazing pieces of knowledge, sharp to the touch and overwhelmingly complicated yet strangely precious. I set my bowl onto the table I took hold of the back of the chair and pulled it out. I sat down and put my hands on the table. That was the moment of the tidal wave. It washed through me and left nothing as it had been before. I found myself swimming in a sea of marvellous awareness that all was well and completely at ease. This fact was utterly undisturbed by the equally plain fact that I chanced to be alive at a time of slow-burning catastrophe for the entire life system of the planet. All things are well was how the anchoress Julian of Norwich put the same realization, and all manner of things shall be well. The clear knowing of this flooded my body and seemed to live vibrantly right inside every terrifyingly complicated... Sorry, read that last sentence again. The clear knowing of this flooded my body and seemed to live vibrantly right inside every terrifying complication of the rider and so much is wrong. I was astonished and yet it seemed more like the astonishment of remembering something I had always known, something very deep lying 
and fundamentally fearless even in the face of matters of overwhelming concern. In fact, it was intimately and completely at one with that concern, stirred to life by it. So we, we could call this an you know, instant of, of, uh, of kensho or, or real insight. Um, most of us don't experience something quite as, as strong as this, um, but often as children we will experience um, powerful moments of um, uh, self-forgetfulness. They can be fleeting, uh, perhaps not so transformative as this one was for um, Susan Murphy, but um, they can give us faith that there are other um, kind of dimensions to consciousness um, that that exist alongside our, our more everyday um, habitual kinds of, of reacting to the world. They can be um, very simple things, uh, two that come to mind um, for me were um, similar experiences. The first two times I did a workshop in Zen, first time was in Sweden, um, and there was a workshop one day and an all-day sitting the next, which we attended. And towards the end of the day, I think it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, um, some people were leaving outside this, this community hall that we were using for the, for the sitting, and they were slamming car doors and calling to each other. And, and I was just um, struck in that moment at, at the clarity of my hearing that little departure outside the hall. It was like my, my uh, mind had been scrubbed of some of its, of its grime and I was just experiencing things more directly. And I had a similar, a similar time at the, at the uh, Zen Center in Rochester the first time we went there um, for a th three-week little mini training program. And again, hearing the water running from the tap uh, and it being, being so noticeable that it was um, with a clarity and, and directness that I most of the time didn't have. So these, these little things can help us to, to take up the practice with confidence. And then if we, if we practice with confidence and um, with vows, which we'll get onto in a minute, then, then we will, that faith will be, will be reinforced. But the point in, in, in Zen is that faith is based on experience. And sometimes these things happen early on in one's practice because we come to it with a, with a beginner's mind. We don't, have, we don't know much about, I know this was the case for me, didn't know much about, for instance, Sashin when I first went to it or how it was supposed to unfold or what it was supposed to be like. And um, this very second Sashin I did, which was in Mexico one week after the first Sashin I did, which was in Rochester, 
we thought we should, since we were coming so far from so far, do do as much as we could, um, even though there was just one week <laughs> between the two. Crazy for a beginner to decide to do that. Um, but again, in that second session, not knowing how to, to do session really, I threw myself into it with a kind of wholeheartedness that it took me a long, long time to get back to after that because once I became a little bit more familiar with things, I had ideas about it, I had ideas about myself, about what should happen. And so these, these, um, this beginning part of practice can be one where we... we um, We come with a fresh mind, a mind maybe that is closer to our kind of innate faith mind, and um, and so we experience uh, the Dharma more more um, directly, and that and our uh, and our faith is strengthened by that. We've talked many times in Taisho and, and certainly it's something that comes up in Dogstan too that a lot of us have mixed feelings about ourselves. So when we hear this this um, teaching that faith in Buddhism is, is basically faith in oneself, uh, we may not feel very encouraged. We may not have, may have, feel like we have a lot of that. And I think sometimes our faith manifests not so much di- directly in faith in ourselves but our faith in the Dharma. We hear the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and they really appeal to us. They appeal to our, our sense of rightness. Um, again, we put that down to karmic affinity, um, but we come we come to the practice through through um, a sense of of the Dharma feeling right, rational to us. Um, and then we go from there. We, we um, dis- discover other aspects of its richness and what, what is, is required of us. One of the questions that can, can arise if we don't feel like we have much faith is, well, how do, how do I increase it? Give me, give me a method. And um, here we could, we could, we're heading again in the direction of, of vow. So... Just to vow to keep going, to come back again and again, to to stay with the practice, to give it a fair go. Um, somewhere in the in his teachings, he, Master Shenyin says, "Use the faith you already have. You may only have a little bit, but use that." Um, another way of thinking about about vow is as 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 a uh, kind of specific form of determination. And certainly, especially in Zen, determination is seen as being um, very important. So now a little bit more, we'll focus a little bit more on this second aspect, vow. Again, um, we, we're part of a non-theistic re- religion, and for that reason, prayer, which is very important in many faiths, 
is, um, plays a, a much less central role. It's not entirely absent. You know, when we do, we do the, the returns of merit, like the one we did for, for our healing chanting service, that is an example of, of where there's a kind of a mixture of, of vow and prayer in those, in those um, echoes, the returns of merit. Uh, but you could say that largely in Buddhism, and especially in our tradition, um, vows take the place of or, or fit into the absence left by um, where prayer might go. The, probably the most, you could say the most... Um, important thing we do every day besides our actual sitting would be the four vows. And um, you can understand and understand them in, in um, from many, many angles and we've, we've, we've talked about them in other Taishos. All beings without number I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. So if we can, we can look at um, these um, four things that, that Master Xing Yin felt to be essential ingredients of um, our practice, besides our zazen, it was faith, vow, compassion, and renunciation. And so, in within the four vows, these four, four bodhisattvic vows or great vows, we can find um, the other three that that Master Sheng Yin lists. So, the one, the numbers three and four. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate and the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. You could say are um, their expressions of our faith um, in the Dharma, in the, in the case of the third one, and the Buddha, Buddha nature, the fourth. The first one, all beings without number I vow to liberate, of course, is an expression of compassion, our bodhicitta, our... Um, mind of enlightenment or aspiration to awaken in order to help others awaken. And then the second one, endless blind passions I vow to uproot, is an expression of renunciation, uprooting the three poisons, the blind passions. So right in our vows we have these, these different aspects. And what, what vows do, um, in large part, is give us a sense of direction. Without vows, um, our practice could be somewhat aimless or amorphous. If we look at if we look at these four vows, we can see that um, the the ultimate goal is Buddhahood. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. 
it's it's the last I think it's the last heat one that's expressed here because it, because it's the culmination of the other three, or we could say that um, becoming a Buddha is grounded in the other three in the in the compassion, faith in the Dharma, the the willingness to to give up the the poisons, the blind passions. All of these are, are absolutely essential uh, for Buddhahood. And, and people sometimes get stuck on the first one. Um, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. How, how, can you imagine a bigger vow than that, a more, more daunting one? but it's very significant that it's first. It's putting, it's, it's reminding us right from the start, put others first. I once heard somebody ask um, Alan Wallace a question about um, the, the Bodhisattvic vow and how, how overwhelming it was, these, these, this vowing to, to um, liberate um, all beings, all beings. It's, I'm, you can't even count that because you think of t past and future, certainly future. How can we even get, put a number to it? And and so this person was asking, well, how, how do I do that? How do I even handle such a such a vow, such an aspiration? And he said something that really made a difference to me in the retreat that I was doing when I heard it and has continued to be helpful. And, that, and he said, all beings means all the beings you meet. All the beings you encounter. So forget about the beings you don't meet for now. And meet, as we take it broadly, it doesn't mean just meeting in person, but meeting in a, through other means <coughs> as well. But to, to deal with what we meet the ant on the bench, or the the angry, impatient person at the shops, whatever it is, whoever it is, to 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 bring that aspiration to liberation of beings, to the beings that you're actually encountering, makes it much much more possible, even though it remains uh, a mind blowing vow to make. So compassion first and then renunciation. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. So the, the endless blind passions are the, are the poisons. The, the things that, that um, burden us, that obstruct us, that, that um, us and um, frustrate us, uh, the things that make give us so much sorrow and, and struggle. Yet I read I read from this passage in uh, in Sishin, but it's worth repeating it again. Um, and it'll be new to the people who weren't in Sishin. So this is this is from a, 
um, the Tibetan source, Dan Brown. And this, here's what he says about renunciation. It's an important point for us to understand. Renunciation is not an outward but an inward action. It means primarily that one uses the objects of the five senses but does not depend on them or become attached to them. The opposite of this is what is called in Tibetan hairy renunciation, referring to the sudden outward abandoning of the pleasures of life, owing to a sudden passion to renounce what he or she thinks to be samsara. Someone might abandon all belongings and escape to a mountainous retreat, only to return a week or two later feeling very discouraged and weak. Such renunciation, in quotes, is generally insincere and rarely lasts for more than a short time. The reason for this is that it's, it's um, often uh, based on, on idealistic thinking and on what is actually not the spirit of renunciation but a spirit of, of um, trying to escape from the world, not to let it go. And the point here is it doesn't, renunciation, you may not even notice it and outwardly doesn't mean um, necessarily giving up one's trappings of, of one's life, but this inner sh shift in attitude towards those things. He continues, attachment is the inability to separate oneself from something or someone and is also giving all of one's energy to satisfying a desire, taking it as an ultimate goal. Taking our desires as an ultimate goal. This is what has to be abandoned. In relationships with people, detachment means realizing the truth of impermanence and the non-ultimate nature of human relationships. Having developed such detachment, one should be happy to be with others, but at the same time, be able to adapt to changing circumstances. So this inner change in us, this, this recognition to some degree or another of the way in which our clinging and our aversion um, makes us unhappy. To see that, to understand it. And then the renunciation is not violent. It's, it's um, a, a, just a gradual um, shifting away from uh, pain-producing habits and thoughts. The, um, the third of our vows, Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. This We could understand this to be um, giving us the kind of how of the first two, the liberating beings and, and uh, uprooting the, the, the passions, are um, 
reached by means of um, mastering the dharmas. Another way we could understand this mastering of the dharmas is, is that we have enough faith in, in them that we want to go from, from a, just an understanding, intellectual understanding, to an embodiment. Shingyan says, sometimes we recite the vows without really meaning them. When we take these vows, we should say them from the depths of our heart so that we can actually mean it. Some people fear making vows because they think the vows are too lofty for them to accomplish. They should know that the vows at least give us a direction and a path and we try to fulfill them according to our own abilities and at our own place. Pace. Another important point to to go at these things um, at our own pace, and that's where vows can come in to to make make this great vow to realize Buddhahood is to to set our aspiration um, in a in a in a vast kind of timescape and landscape. Master Ching Yin later on is talking, still talking about vows, um, the four vows. He talks about the difference between, uh, you could say, between Buddhist compassion and um, the ordinary kind of pity we might feel for somebody who's suffering. He says, in the light of the Dharma, a person with compassion sees sentient beings as pitiable not because they are destitute, but because they are in the midst of afflictions they are not even aware of. One can only generate this kind of compassion when one understands the Dharma. So from the perspective of the Buddha Dharma, one is able to understand the workings of vexations within people and from that realization give rise to a genuine sense of pity. And of course, that... that ability to have compassion for people's vexations for their for their sufferings goes along with our capacity to uh, recognize our own suffering our own vexations in their afflicted state sentient beings not only harm themselves but unknowingly harm others directly or indirectly the compassionate bodhisattva sees this very clearly and feels genuine pity. Specifically, they realize that sentient beings 
are in a state of unknowing and ignorance. This means people are unaware of how they are the cause of their own vexations and problems. Ignorance means that they're afflicted, in their afflicted state, they do not see the need to acquire wisdom to resolve their problems. We, when, we, when we see this clearly in, in other people, then it also helps us to see where we can help and where we can't help. The Buddha himself said, um, I can only show the way. Beings have to en- um, come to enlightenment themselves. that in terms of how we show the way, um, to, the more we have, we have embodied the, the, tr- the truth, then the more uh, we will be able to, to, to show um, or, or offer um, perspectives that are helpful to people. a little bit more about um, just to keep an eye on the time because I want to leave I think I'll shift to um, just a little bit about about um, we've been talking about compassion and also a little bit about wisdom and um, this is just from a um, Guogu, who's actually a Dharma disi- disciple or, or Dharma heir of Master Shengyin's, and he um, talks about wisdom and compassion, because we talk about them as two different things, but in, in a very real way, they're, they're, they're deeply intertwined. This is just something to keep in mind in, in talking about compassion and wisdom. He says, what is wisdom? Wisdom is emptiness. What is emptiness? Relationships. So you are made up of non-you. You are related to everything else, everyone else. In Chan, when a person gains insight into wisdom, which is insight into the nature of emptiness, it is at the same time the realization of compassion. Wisdom and emptiness are not two wings of a bird. They are actually the same thing. Wisdom is interconnectedness. Emptiness is relationships. And emptiness here we could say, in some ways a better word might be fluidity. When you, come, when you become relationships, you become everything else. Amidst relationships, nowhere is there attachment or self-referentiality. This is the meaning of supreme wisdom. Gaining, losing, wanting, rejecting... They're all based on self-referentiality and attachment. You mustn't lose sight of who you actually are. And so he's here putting into, into stark um, proximity but the uh, first of the four vows and the last of the four vows. The first vow being about compassion, putting others first, dropping our, our self-referentiality and attachment and the last of the four vows, which is talking about realizing supreme wisdom. 
coming at the really coming at the same thing from two different directions. So, um, for the last part of this talk, um, I have a new version of the four vows to introduce to everybody. Um, and this is the four vows in Te Reo. Some of you know about this, but I think probably most of you have not yet seen these. And um, I have copies for everyone, which people can take now. Before we get into each each line, I just want to say a little bit about um, why we have this and uh, what we're going to do with it. So, um, from this Sunday, we're going to be um, doing the, the four vows in Tadeo at the end of the sitting, rather than um, in our English version. And we'll have we'll have cards under the mats for people. And, and eventually it'll be in our chant book, which is a whole other project because we have more and more chants that are not in the book. So we really need to produce our own chant book and that's, that's going to be a bit of a project. But um, for now we'll have cards and um, we'll make it a part of our weekly um, our liturgy here to chant the, the, the four vows in Te Reo, which in, in Te Reo are ko ngā oati e fa. But why? Why are we doing this? Um, I think it's, it's more than a year ago that we first started to talk about um, how to honour the treaty. We have a clause about that in our, in our ethical guidelines. And um, we'd sort of discussed what, what small steps could we take that feel genuine, that feel not just um, token, uh, to to honour the treaty. Um, and we came up with two, two small things to start with that we could then build on. One was to learn more about the, the um, history of this particular whenua that we are on. Um, and this will happen later this year. We're going to start probably with a tour, a guided tour of Mangari Mountain and, and work from that. Um, so learn more about the history of our area, uh, going back pre-arrival pre of, of um, Europeans. And then the other thing what we thought we could do is, is translate some of the chants into Te Reo. And we've started with the four vows for two reasons, I think main reasons. One is they're short, <laughs> so it was a good place to start, to test the water. And the other one is that um, they're the most important thing we, we say in the Zendo. And um, they're very, you know, they're central to the, to the cultivation that we do here. Not only the Zazen, but cultivating our faith, our wisdom, our compassion, our renunciation. 
So um, they're, they're a very good place to start. And um, people might ask, well, what's that got to do really with the treaty? Wasn't the treaty between Māori and the Crown? And yes, that's, that's true, but um, I think the treat, it's fair to say that the, the, the treaty has come to, to represent more than that. It's about who we are as a nation. And um, the, there are the three articles of the treaty which um, have been sort of boiled down to what is known as the three Ps, and some of you may have come across this. Participation, protection, and par partnership. And this, um, the partnership obviously is originally between Māori and the Crown, but um, now expanding and unfolding to apply more broadly the relationship between um, non-Māori, uh, te, te tangata tiriti, and Māori. And um, so we could understand um, this bringing the, the four vows in te reo into our liturgy to be um, different things. And people may, may think of other reasons that I'm not listing here. But one of them is, in terms of participation, is a, just a little step heading in the direction of being more welcoming to Māori here at the Zen Centre. And, and, and in a sense, making a more overt connection to tangata whenua by speaking these, these important vows in Māori. And another, another aspect of this is really acknowledgement of te reo as a taonga for us, um, as a language fit for the Dharma, and as a, a, a language that, that makes us unique, that, that, is, is, that is deeply entwined with our connection to the earth and to, to this land. So we're, we're, we're affirming partnership, we could say, in, in uh, recognising that we are uh, a bulk bicultural country, we're also, of course, multicultural, but primarily and, and historically sooner a bicultural country and recognising that special character that we have. Um, it, was, it was an exciting process to go through um, kind of receiving this, this translation back. Um, it's been done by Tom Rohr. He's a, a professor at Waikato University who uh, Richard made contact with during his uh, uh, writers-in-residency there. And we, we immediately both thought that he was the right guy for us when we heard that he had translated a Baha'i prayer for his daughter, who's a, who is Baha'i, and that he had um, also translated Alice in Wonderland into Te Reo. <laughs> and he's, he's a real, he's a real um, um, uh, a deep uh, liver of the language, you know, really, really into the, the etymology of the words and the poetry of the words. And I think we've got a, um, a translation which has a lot of music to it. And, and, and power and uh, weight. So um, just to, f to finish up our, um, 
our evening here, I'd like to go through, first of all, just go through a little bit and explain some of the words that are used or the background to the words, and then perhaps if we've got time, just go through it um, where people can, can uh, uh, repeat after me. And there probably be, there are people here who have better pronunciation. Um, uh, we do, do have a little recording which I've been practicing with and anybody who'd like that we can, we can email you a copy of that recording. It's very short but it's got the vowels on it twice done by, read out by uh, Tom Roa. So, um, the four vowels konga wati e fa and this wati is, um, is a, a Maori word taken from an English word oath. So, um, uh, at first I thought, oh, I'd rather have a Maori term, but um, Maori is a living language. It doesn't, it only doesn't have only old stuff in it. <laughs> it has new stuff as well. So the first line, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. Ko ngā koiora katoa, he tātou kore, ko takuwati me whakaora. So the first part, ko ngā koiora katoa, that's um, all beings and koiora is an interesting word in that it's used for, so if you want to form the word that means biologist you use this word so it's, it's living beings it, it, um, I'd like to get together with, with Tom sometime and go over this with him in more detail but I want to find out whether it would include other be beings from other realms how Maori would see that um, he kore is countless. Then kotakuwati, my I vow, me whakaora. And this word um, whakaora um, is a connotations of healing and saving, uh, making well. Um, the word for a lifeboat, for instance, is poti whakaora. So that what's, what carries, I thought that was a nice link because the, the, what carries across to, us across to the other shore from the shore of um, ignorance to the shore of enlightenment um, can mean revive, kafakaura can mean revive or support or heal. Second um, vow, endless blind, blind passions I vow to uproot. Ko ngā aurere pohe he mutunga kore Kotakuwati me kitu kitu. So, ko ngā aurere pohe, um, unwelcome passions, <laughs> he mutunga kore, without end, kotakuwati me kitu kitu. Now, kitu kitu is quite a rare word, it's not a very common word in Māori, but it can mean to ferret out, but also to delve into. So it suits this, this vow about the poisons quite well. Then the third line, Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. Ko ngā kuwaharāma he rurikore ko takuwati me tomo. So kuwaha is gateway. Rāma is the Māori um, word for Dharma. Um, he rurikore um, beyond measure, and again, that 
that's not a common word. I, it wasn't in my dictionary at all. Kotakuwati metomo, to enter. So Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. And then the last one, the last one is wonderful. Teara fakaharahara apura kotakuwati meofai. So we have eight A's um, gathered together at the beginning of that. that and it's just wonderful when you think of the, the, sh- the shortest of all the sutras um, in the Perfection of Wisdom sutras consists of a single letter, and that letter is R. So here we have, have eight R sounds at the beginning of this, for the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. And the word used at the end, phi, can mean pursue, it can, mo- can mean attain, but it's also used of saying a prayer. So to perform a karakia, they use the word phi. So it, in, a, in a very real sense, it seems um, to my uneducated eye that um, he's talking about embodiment as well, embodiment of the great way. So um, that's, that's just a little bit of, of, um, of kind of background to some of these terms. Um, and I propose now that we we finish this um, sitting with uh, the four vows in Te Reo. And, and just because they're new for now, um, we'll do it that I'll say, I'll say a line and then everyone else can um, repeat after me. So, um, and Peter, <laughs> you can just hit the bell at the usual places. Konga wati efa. Konga koyora katoa he tataukore ko takuwati me fakaora. Konga koyora katoa he tataukore me fakaora. Kotakuwati me kitketu. Konga kuaharama herurikore, kotakuwati me tomo. Te arafakaharahara apura, kotakuwati me fai. just end now with um, the three prostrations.
Two weeks from tonight, we'll have um, Praise Nana Sermon. They want the sheets collected into the wall and be prepared in half. Yes, yes, that's a good <laughs> the teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service, or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.